This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name and thanks a lot for joining me for the Country Hour this Monday lunchtime. Today on the program we're going to head out into the paddock and catch up with a Catherine mango grower who is busy planting thousands of new trees in his orchard. This will double our size, so we'll, we'll have about 7,500 trees here. It'll give us a bit more volume and a bit more efficiency on all the machinery that we require to run an orchard. The numbers will stack up a little bit better. Yeah, what's giving him the confidence to put more mangoes in the ground? You'll find out soon. There was some good rain across large parts of the NT over the weekend. We're going to check in with one cattle station that's had a good drop. And for years we've been hearing about how robots potentially could be used to pick fruit like mangoes. Well, today you're going to hear with a farmer in Australia that is actually using robots right now to pick their fruit. They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage, <laughs> to put it like that. Um, they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm. Yeah, that story coming up on the Country Hour before one thirty today. But first up, I want to talk about resources company Tyvon Limited. It has some big plans for the Northern Territory. It wants to spend hundreds of millions of dollars building a minerals processing plant at Middle Arm, creating products for things needed for batteries... Tyvon says the plant will create around 1,500 jobs in construction and another 1,000 ongoing jobs. But previous iterations of its plans have raised serious concerns about its environmental impact on Darwin Harbour. Also today, in an announced, it announced an agreement to buy a new titanium and vanadium prospect in the East Kimberley, which it says is one of the largest of its kind in the world. So there's a lot going on for this company. Grant Wilson is the new executive chair of the company and he was behind a shareholder-backed change in Tyvon's management late last year. I spoke with him earlier about the new direction for the company and its plans for Middle Arm. The review that we've undertaken, the new board, is a really, really deep review. We walked in with a mandate from shareholders to take a look at everything that had been going on for the past decade. And naturally, when you do that, you're going to find a lot of cobwebs, a lot of suboptimal decisions... So we had a real mandate to, to refresh the company and to bring clear eyes and energy to the situation as well. So the history, as the ABC well knows, of TNG at Middle Arm is checkered, to say the least. Uh, in 2021, there was a public spat between previous management of TNG and the EPA. And the EPA was quite instrumental, uh, along with various stakeholders such as Afant and Paspali, um, in, in showing that the community did not support TNG's uh, proposed plans there. And in fact, the ABC was quite instrumental as well in bringing media coverage to that. And so I reviewed all that information from the outside and then from the inside. I can say firmly that I believe that the community's resistance to previous management trying to do what they proposed was absolutely warranted. And what previous management did was sort of scuffle back down to site Mount Peak with a proposal 
um, to say that they could build an integrated facility in the middle of Australia. Yeah, we walked in and I was very circumspect about that proposal and having looked at it from the inside, my firm view is it's just not feasible. The project's just too complicated. It's too large. It requires a lot of water, requires a lot of people. Um, ultimately, we believe it should be powered by sustainable energy as well. And so there's just not the resources um, down around tea tree for something of that magnitude, both commercially, but also in terms of social impact and social license. So whilst we still have the resource, Mount Peak's important, of course, um, we firmly believe that the right place for the processing facility, um, provided that it's managed uh, optimally um, and with social license, is now Middle Arm. <clears throat> and over the intervening 18 months, obviously the other thing that's changed is Middle Arm itself. So the sustainability development precinct um, has radically transformed in terms of its progress over the past two years under the leadership of Dipple. Um, I've been read into advanced master planning on that now, and I can say it's very impressive um, and that we're comforted as a board in joining publicly um, as a proponent now. And I'm also greatly encouraged that there are other major projects around the Northern Territory uh, which are heading in the direction of large-scale sustainable development, notably in solar. And so we can see a lot of optimality in bringing up the Taiban processing facility uh, to Middle Arm and regaining our location where we've done a lot of work before at the south load um, of the precinct. Yes, so you mentioned there that um, there was a lot of opposition to those previous plans. People worried about environmental impacts from the facility. Uh, What have you done to address those concerns? So I think there's two layers to that. The first is really deep and engaged um, outreach to community and stakeholder. So personally, I've been um, up in Darwin uh, for probably half my time over the past three months and in Alice, and I've met all of the stakeholders um, that uh, were opposed to TNG's um, initial plans at Middle Arm. So that runs the gamut through the people I just mentioned, as well as b- broader community outreach, uh, for example, with Charles Darwin University, with Larrakia and so forth. So I've really made an effort to get to know everyone and just to explain um, in plain English what our plans are and how differentiated they are on the substantive level. So on the substance... One of the big, one of the big sticking issues sure, sure. was the um, a, a plans to discharge wastewater into yes, the harbour. Yes. Uh, is that still going ahead? Yeah, I was just about to come to that. So the substance. You know, on the substance, because we are committed formally to powering the plant using large-scale solar, um, the emissions footprint is actually quite low. So it will be differentiated from some of the other major projects uh, which have been proposed in the Northern Territory in terms of carbon emissions. So our challenges are really twofold, um, air and water. So on air, um, we've got a differentiated profile because as on current plans, the, the main emission that we will have to address from an engineering and technology point of view is sulfur dioxide. So obviously human health is foremost of these concerns and I've already had long discussions uh, with the EPA on this front and with the master planning team. And so we're engaged in a a long process there and I hope and expect that we will fall into the strategic environmental assessment um, of middle arm uh, in due course. So we have to address that and take that upon ourselves. And I I can say that there are engineering and technological solutions available to that. And in time as well, um, bringing in hydrogen to the flow sheet will actually um, address that holistically. So that's one of our unique challenges. On water, a lot of the proponents in the precinct will have demands on water. And this goes both for input and output. 
So for input, you're probably aware that there are strategic initiatives underway in NCG, including, for example, Arrows Dam. There's discussions around other sources of water, for example, desal. And this will be mapped out over time, uh, principally by the master planning team. So I don't want to get into you know some of their plans because they're still um, being developed. And the priority really is to maximise the use of common use infrastructure and thereby minimise impact on harbour. So for ourselves, there's two aspects. One is that with our revised plans, we do not expect um, to be having any impact on the harbour itself in terms of things like dredging and any use of harbour for ourselves will be very limited, perhaps one, one ship every fortnight or so. So that side of things is pretty easy. And then on water, we've got a journey ahead but we'll be relying very much upon the master planning and be looking at inputs and outputs. And on outputs, yes, we'll be doing everything to avoid harbour discharge, of course. So that includes wastewater facilities. And to the extent that harbour discharge may be available, we're not sure yet, we'll be working towards common use infrastructure and ensuring that you know very strict environmental guidelines are applied with. If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. You're on ABC Radio right across the Territory and you're hearing from the Executive Chairman of Tyvon Limited, Grant Wilson, um, a resources company with some pretty big plans here for the Northern Territory. Uh, Grant Tyvon has just signed an agreement to acquire a new titanium and vanadium prospect just over the border in the East Kimberley. What will that mean for the viability of your plans? Yes, yeah, so this is the second big finding of what I just referred to, the project review. So the first big finding was that the Taiwan processing facility, we believe, does belong at Middle Arm. And again, that's proximity to infrastructure, proximity to a, a workforce, proximity to large-scale solar, and so on and so forth, provided we've got that environmental um, aspects entirely locked down and a social licence to operate. So that's, that's what we're planning on that front, and that's a multiple year journey. The second major finding was that if we could, as a board, we really believed um, there was, it was appropriate to consider the resource base of the company. So TNG and now Taiwan has owned um, mining leases around Mount Peak uh, for around a decade. And it's a world-class resource. We've acknowledged that publicly today. We did a study of all uh, titanomagnetite resources around the world in December, looking about 15 of them, and it certainly ranks well. However, in that same study, there's one resource which just stands out. It's quite incredible in terms of its size and also its quality. So in terms of the grade of concentrate that it might be able to produce, particularly in the critical mineral of vanadium, and vanadium we think has a very big future, including in terms of climate transition because it can become the basis for large-scale stationary batteries such as vanadium redox flow batteries so we're quite interested in trying to find an improved resource if we could and if we could finance an acquisition and so i started negotiations uh with krr the owner of that resource in early january and that spooled up to a transaction which was completed on friday last week and announced this morning so it's big news and it's in obviously in concert with um, the decision to relocate back to Darwin because we now have two resources. The difference being that ultimately Spiwire is high quality, longer life, and it's able to be brought in on a boat from Wyndham to Darwin. So if that WA prospect is uh, so good, does that mean Mount Peak might take a back seat? That's probably the question of the day. And the answer for that at this point is it's premature to say that. We've got probably three to four months of test work ahead. 
to confirm the geology and to confirm the amenability of our Taiwan processing technology, uh, technology to the resource. Um, I would say though that we're optimistic. We wouldn't have bought the resource unless uh, the fundamentals stack up. And one of our major service providers, SMS Group in Germany, has already done a lot of test work on the Spiwa resource um, five to ten years ago. So we're confident it will ultimately hold up, and then it would be down to project economics. And I think it's fair to suppose that uh, provided we get the results that we expect by mid-year, that SPIWAR is a dramatically improved result in terms of overall project fundamentals. And so we will be dictated by that, as we have to be, uh, owing duties to shareholders. Now, Mount Peak still will have a big role because it's the second uh, feedstock. And I hope as well that we will be able to build a pilot plant at some point. It's very important en route to social license that we can demonstrate the technology at some sort of scale. And Mount Peak may well have a role to play there in terms of um, providing ore, which can um, help to facilitate a plan like that. So it's still very much a strategic asset. Uh, it's a watching brief, but it is fair to say, based on announcement today, that the tie-up of Spiwa and Middle Arm is, in the board's view, transformative, absolutely transformative. And if it does all go as planned, I think Taiwan at Middle Arm could be viewed as a as a flagship project for the precinct, um, and it's a great project. Critical minerals. Um, forward-facing, sustainable, long life, um, lots of jobs uh, for Darwin, which we can really lean into in terms of creating pathways, including via CDU. So I'm quite excited about the prospect, but we've got more work to do. That is Grant Wilson. He's the executive chairman of Tyven Limited. Uh, Tyven, of course, wants to be one of the first tenants for the NT government's middle arm industrial precinct in Darwin Harbour. And it looks like they're potentially also the future of the Mount Peak mine is being reassessed with that new purchase of the uh, prospect in Western Australia. Uh, with any changes, we'll keep you up to date here on the Country Hour. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to the Country Hour. It is 15 minutes to one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Well, late last mango season, there was a lot of fruit in the market, which caused a big crash in the prices that farmers were receiving. It was a really tough end back end to the season. So what makes one Catherine farmer confident to plant even more mango trees? Uh, you'll find out after a tune by Margot Price. <laughs> Margot Price there with Change of Heart. You are tuned in to the Country Hour with Dan Fitzgerald right across the Territory this Monday afternoon. Well, a Catherine mango grower is working to double the size of his orchard with around 3,500 new mangoes going in the ground. We're talking about the honey gold variety. Nick Ormsby says he's confident the fruit will sell when the trees come into production, despite a bit of a tough past season, which saw growers paid very little due to the sheer amount of fruit that was on the market all at the same time. And Max Rowley, he went along to have a look at the new trees being put in the ground. So we've got some fertiliser in the bottom of that hole and then we plant the tree and put the uh, soil in. Give it a bit of a stomp, push all the air out, put the sprinkler back next to it and move to the next one. 
and then we'll come and put the tree guard on and pick up the plastic pots afterwards. Is there anything that goes into planting an orchard versus, you know, just a mango tree in your backyard? Yeah, look, we mark it all out by GPS tractors, so all the trees are sort of in within two to ten centimetres. It's all irrigation, uh, telemetry, so we can control every drop, basically. Everything's metered. Putting all the PVC in under the ground, polyline, sprinklers, automation, yeah. Right, so there's a lot that goes in to uh, the preparation before you plant these trees. Yeah, there is. I've sort of been doing the planning on this for for nearly I know, 18 months now. Uh, even down to the grass in the in the rows, you, it's nice to get a good established grass crop in to hold all the soil and and keep it a bit cooler. And there's been a lot of trees planted in the Northern Territory, a lot of mango trees in the last couple of years. Why do you think we need more? Well, I, I, I don't know that we need more. There's a lot of orchards disappearing as they get older and it's you just need a bit more volume and quality to chase the market, yeah. Right, because you're quite a small producer at the moment. How much will this grow your orchard? This will double our size. So we'll, we'll have about 7,500 trees here. And um, it'll give us a bit more volume and a bit more efficiency on all the machinery that we require to run an orchard. Uh, the numbers will stack up a little bit better. And so you're confident when these trees start fruiting in a number of years that there'll be a market for that fruit? Yeah, I'm quite comfortable. I mean, it's all about quality now. Um, as long as you're producing quality and um, keep that consistently, I, I think you'll, you'll do all right. Any farming's, you know, can be hit and miss on any crop you do or any animal you grow. I think the current state of business and inflation and all that's probably hurting a little bit but it'll go through a cycle again what was the last mango season like for you we had a really great season we packed out some phenomenal quality again uh it's just pretty hard this year darwin clashed with catherine catherine clashed with the burdekin burdekin clashed with north queensland so it's fairly glutted in the markets i think we just need to look at all our businesses and sort of account for it as much as we can going forward. It's, yeah, survival of the fittest this year. So did you manage to break even at least uh, over the season? Yeah, we broke even this year, which is okay. It's maybe a bit better than some other people fared out, but uh, you don't want to be just breaking even. You need to you need to make some sort of money, but that's that's farming and agriculture. That's, that's the crux of it sometimes. Um, there's a lot of long nights and hard work that goes involved, but, uh, yeah, that's the gamble you take. And what are the, the real challenges for the industry at the moment? I think quality is a big issue. Transport, labour hire, even getting enough cardboard sometimes, I think, can be a bit of an issue. Nothing really works that well when you have a glutted year. When everything comes on at the same time, it's and it wouldn't matter what industry you're in, when everything comes at once, it's it's pretty hard going. But, you know, there's been plenty of good years too, so you can't, uh, you can't be too negative. 
back to the the new trees mm-hmm. that you've planted mm-hmm. how long until they are fruiting and, and you're getting you know some mangoes off these trees and to market uh, i'd suggest three three to four years we'll be uh picking these trees um a lot of looking after now for the next three years but yeah we should start picking a few mangoes in within three years and then it'll get more and more as they get older so uh i'm looking forward to it and sky's the limit is Nick Ormsby, a mango grower in Catherine, speaking there to Max Rowley about his plans while he's planting around 3,500 brand-new honey gold mango trees. We hope they all grow well in the coming months. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural. Well, a company that sells meat-free patties to fast food stores and supermarkets is closing its regional Victorian manufacturing plant less than three years after it was opened. The plant-based meat substitute company V2 Food has confirmed its plans to close its $20 million manufacturing facility in Wodonga. As Warwick Long reports, it's been a tough period for the burgeoning meat substitute or fake meat sector. It's just it's just an incredibly tough market, whether it's domestically or globally, and I think they've They've, they've found that out the hard way. A joint venture between the CSIRO's main sequence ventures and parent company of Hungry Jack's, Jack Cowers Competitive Foods Australia, V2 Foods was founded as a meat substitute company in 2019 to supply burger patties to Hungry Jack's and other plant-based products to major supermarkets. It quickly announced a $20 million plan for a Wodonga factory, which opened in December 2020 on a 55,000 square metre site, and the company touted that it would grow to need 40 to 50 workers. But now it has been revealed that V2 Foods will close its Wodonga plant. The ABC has been told there's only a remaining four workers on site who have been told that they will learn of the timeline to close the factory in the coming weeks. The ABC has made numerous attempts to contact V2 Foods to discuss the plan and the company has not responded. Protein market analyst Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net says the V2 Foods factory closure in Wodonga points to wider issues in the substitute meat category. It's not a great thing for the people of Wodonga that are working there or suppliers that are sending product in, but from the perspective of the, the, you know, the company itself and what they're producing, it's no surprise to see that you know the, the, the trading conditions are, are difficult for them. You know, they might be saying we've got good sales, but like we've seen with some of these other companies overseas that are reporting good sales volumes, when you look at their operating profit, that doesn't translate to profitable outcomes because they're often um, you know selling product for for less than what they're making it. Has it been a difficult period for the meat substitute segment of the market? Absolutely has been. If you get past the initial stage and probably the most commonly referred to one, Warwick's the Beyond Meat because they're a listed company. So the initial few months after the listing, the share price rallied extraordinarily and there was all this hype around the growth in the sector and how much sales they're going to achieve and how they're going to you know, take wrestle this market share away from real meat. 
And if you look now five years down the track how they've performed, they certainly have seen growth in sales, but it hasn't translated into operating profit. Indeed, you know, the last three years, their operating profit's gone into the negative significantly. Their share price has gone down accordingly? Absolutely. If you look at from the outset of the of the issue of the share price, currently they're down about 74% in value. But I spoke about that initial rally in price. If you take it from the peak of their share price, they're down 93% presently. What do you put that down to? This was a, a new product hitting supermarket shelves and, and in the case of V2, also going into one of the biggest uh, fast food chains in Australia as burgers at Hungry Jack's. What do you put it down to in terms of the, the difficulties faced by the biggest players in, in this industry? I, I think, in essence, they've missed their market completely. And, and also the cost structure of this product is still, it's a, it's a product that's competing with what you'd call commoditized meat, so ground meat, which is the low cost meat. So you're in a quite competitive market space and it's quite cost competitive. So you're, you've got a product you're producing that isn't as good and it's more costly and it's, and it's going to a market segment which people are cost sensitive. So, you know, to be able to make it a success, they've got to be cheaper than real meat um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's not a bad product for what it is, but it just doesn't cut it when it comes to being a real meat product. And the average punter that has a burger isn't fussed about having plant-based or, or real meat. They'd, they'd rather have something that's cheap and tastes good, and that's real meat. And if the data showed otherwise, I'd have a different opinion. Matt, da- Matt Dalgleish, he's an analyst with episode3.net, ending that report there by Warwick Long. And you can read more about the closure of that V2 Foods factory and the future of what that looks like for plant-based meat substitutes online at the ABC Rural website. We are approaching the 1 o'clock news. Up after that, we'll be speaking with the Weather Bureau. If you've got any questions for the Bureau, send us a text now on 0487 991057. And please send us your rain reports too. There's a... Quite a few showers popping up around the territory this afternoon. If it's raining at your place, please let us know. G'day, this is Chris Nathaniel at Tropiculture Australia Bees Creek and you're listening to The Country Hour. And you're listening to me, Dan Fitzgerald, behind the mic this Monday afternoon. Thanks a lot for your company, wherever you might be tuning in or you might be tuning in later after the fact via our podcast. All our programs are put up there so you can download them and listen to them in your convenience. Uh, Still to come this afternoon, uh, we're going to check out a robot that is actually being used right now on an Australian farm to to pick fruit. They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage. to put it like that. Um, they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm. Yeah, and we'll also hear from Bushfires NT about the outlook for fire danger in Central Australia. Lots of rain and lots of grass in Central Australia at the moment. What does that mean for fires? We'll find out soon. But first of all, let's um, head to the Weather Bureau where we've got Sally Cutter today. G'day Sally, how are you going? Oh, not too bad, thanks. That's the way. Um, some good rainfall totals over the weekend. Uh, where were some of the biggest drops? Uh, 
Pennant Creek was probably the one of the bigger ones over the last, last 72 hours. They had 130 millimetres and 118.4. That fell basically overnight on Saturday night. So it took all night to do it, but it was the a lot of it fell sort of during that period. And it, that's the total for the 24 hours to 9 a.m. on Sunday was that 118 millimetres was the second wettest February on record for that site, and that's 55 or so years of records. So it just gives you an idea of how wet it, it was. So if anybody there's thinking it was, so this is big rain, it, it was pretty big rain. It's, if you go to, to even to Alexandra Downs had 43, Elliot 63, there's, Javois had 26, so the, to the eastern parts of the, or northeastern parts of the Simpson district didn't miss out. If you're looking up around the Victoria River district, the upper Victoria River had 122 millimetres. The, so there's some pretty good falls. The West Baines River, 72. Wilms Crossing, 86. And these are all the 72-hour totals. Saddle Creek had 87 millimetres. Larger Manu Airport had 70. Then as you go a bit further north, the, the totals aren't as big. There was what, 61 at Ironwood Station. Yeah, yeah. 47. Lot, mostly yeah, through that Victoria River Catherine. District and, and the yeah. Barclay region sort of copped the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things are starting to fire up already this afternoon. Uh, what's the outlook yes. for the next couple of days in the top end? Uh, we're going to see everything continuing to fire up. Roper River at Elsie Homestead's already had 31 millimetres and Warlock Pond's 30. So there's some good rain around already. And for this time of day, that's quite big totals. So we're going to see the continuation of those showers and storms becoming a little bit more frequent over the top end. The focus of the heavy rainfall is going to move out of the Gregory into the southern parts of the the top end. So that's the, the, we're just going to see those totals increase. And because the soil's so wet, we are going to start to see the rivers respond to those to the rainfall. So just be aware that you might find the creeks are coming up a little bit and the rivers are rising. And we did see a little bit of river rises for around that the Victoria River area to overnight as a result of that rainfall. Yeah, we've still got a flood watch out for parts of the Carpentaria the Bonaparte Coastal and the Central and Eastern Inland Northern Territories. So we're talking about the Upper Vic yep. River, the Settlement Creek, Nicholson River, um, parts of the Barclay and the Georgina River. Um, for yep, Central, that, that should be wound back. Sorry, that, that should be wound back today. But we are keeping a very close eye on the Victoria River. Okay. So Central Australia. Central Australia. But, yeah. What uh, Central Australia next few days ahead? How are things looking? Uh, hot if you're down that Leicester area, we're looking at temperatures up around that 40 degree mark as a maximum, even into the Aperture Fink area, so we're still for, so looking around 40 there as well. There's a little bit of cloud down there, so it's not going to be totally sort of clear. There might be the odd, sort of very slight chance of seeing a shower or storm, maybe, to, or might just you might hear something and not reach the ground. The, we are going to see the showers and storms increase again as we go into Saturday. The, as the next trough moves through the southern parts, and that will see the temperatures drop down to the mid 30s, which to approaching to be approaching those March sort of averages and just a little bit below the February ones. Yeah. Okay. Um, and for Central Australia, um, we've been hearing it's been hot for a while. Is there a cool change on the horizon at all? Yeah. That's. The, when, when that change comes through at the weekend, as I said, it's it only it's only taking temperatures back to average, 
it's not actually sort of really cooling things down to to making it sort of nice and cool as like the temperatures we have been experiencing. But the that Yulara is sort of looking at 39s, 40s, and dropping down to 36 on Saturday. So it's it's more taking as I said taking it down to average rather than actually making it nice and cool. Okay, thanks for the update today, Sally. That's okay. That is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. It is 11 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. Don't miss the Queen of Country Pop, Shania Twain, on Saturday Night Country. Don't impress me much. Becky chats with Shania about her first album in five years, Waking Up Dreaming. Find out how she makes her songwriting so relatable. Being conversational, saying it like it is, and a little bit of sense of humour to, you know, balance out the sass. Never hurt. <laughs> Shania Twain on Saturday Night Country with Becky Cole. Listen now on the ABC Listen app. Well, as we've heard, there was some good rain around the weekend. A Waterloo station near the NTWA border had 24 millimetres. Its neighbour, Roadswood, had 61, and this is the sound of rain at Sturt Plains near Dunmara. Uh, had a couple of good storms over the weekend, as Brad Inglis told me earlier. Yeah, no, it was, um, oh, I hadn't seen it for a long time. It was good. It was, uh, I think we had about 40 mil um, day before yesterday, and then yesterday we had um, oh, just pretty well close to 70 mil. Uh, but mostly, or well, lunchtime yesterday, just came in and, um, yeah, it laid some water, which is... Uh, it was good. Like we were driving around, oh, nearly everywhere a week ago. But the country's looking the picture, and 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 we were sort of saying, you know, if we're right now, but compared to the last few years, it's good. But uh, if we get a top up on this, it's uh, good to master a better better scenario, really. So you're pretty set up for the year ahead right now. Oh yeah. Oh well, <laughs> you look at the last. Four or five years, we're, we're real good. But, um, yeah, mate, I can't complain. I, it, it, it looks really good. And the country's thirsty, but like every rain we got, it dried up quick and it wasn't much laying water. So you could tell how how much the country really needed a good drink. And, um, yeah, the last couple of days, and it's it's sort of looking out to the east here now. It's coming in again here now. So, uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining. And I imagine over the last couple of years, you would have been doing some earlier mustering. Um, has has your timetable been pushed back a little bit? Oh, it's it's huge. But even you know, we're putting your rear out in bloody January the last few few years, and um, you know the country turned. And even the other day, I went for a drive, and I forgot what it was like to clear a radiator out with grass seed. You know, I haven't done that for bloody four years, probably. <laughs> not a bad job to be doing. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not complaining, mate. It's good. And I think everyone's had a good hit. Um, Everywhere, really, even Allison, oh, some mates around Allison put some huge falls up and, and uh, yeah, which is good. And, and, I mean, you know, the cattle jobs come back and, and a little bit in price, but the, the, the kilos and the, and the benefit to the animals is going to be huge, you know. Um, it's going to be good for everyone. Yeah, so uh, how are you feeling about the season ahead? Ah, uh, mate, ready to go. Bloody, um, no, really good and just to have that. Have that uh, pressure off from from um, the seed side of things, and the, and the and the cows and calves are going to be a lot better. And it's it's yeah, it's exciting, mate. It's it's a definitely a good change. Oh well, hopefully there's a little bit more to come for you. Thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. Cheers.
It's good on you, Dan. Thanks, mate. Brad Inglis, he is from Sturt Plain Station just near Dunmara in the top end, speaking about the good rains that he's been seeing over the last couple of days. It is 14 minutes past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. We're also available via the podcast. Well, there's some brand new recruits to help manage fires in Central Australia. After about 12 months without a full team, Bushfires NT now has five people to manage the Alice Springs and Barclay Fire Management Zones. The team recently met with the NT Cattlemen's Association to hear about pastoralist concerns. And Bushfires NT's Nathaniel Staniford spoke to Victoria Ellis afterwards to find out about risks for the season ahead. Uh, it was a chance to introduce the, uh, the new Bushfires team to the NTCA members. Uh, so we've gone through a fair bit of recruitment throughout bushfires lately and we're back up to full strength operationally out of the Alice Springs office. So a chance for the new members to, to meet the NTCA and uh, just talk about mitigation in the season ahead. And what sort of concerns or interests or things did the members here want to discuss? Uh, we spoke a little bit about potential for fire ignitions uh, such as Cracker Night, uh, Fink Desert Race and gatherings out in the community which could lead to uh, escape campfires and the like. Uh, there was also discussion about uh, communication both between stations and from uh, station to station and also stations back to Bushfires NT about what's going on uh, out in the region. Uh, there are also questions about uh, planning for the uh, upcoming fire season in Central Australia. Whilst the rain has been fantastic and there's a lot of grass growth, uh, it can be really helpful for the uh, for the pastoral industry because that's the feed source, uh, but it also equates to fuel uh, that could use fires. So Bushfires NT will be focusing a lot on mitigation uh, in the coming months. With those risks of escaping campfires, how big of a concern is that? There's always potential there uh, and one of the reasons that Fink was brought up is because it brings a lot of people who may not necessarily have the the understanding on how to manage a campfire properly and ensuring that it's completely put out before they leave. Uh, so we'll look at uh, launching some media uh, publicity about that uh, closer to the date and really pushing forward to people that there is a lot more grass in the environment and we need to be really careful about this. Uh, and making sure that our campfires are completely extinguished just to minimise any risk of accidental ignition for bushfires. And I guess the main risk too is if that campfire escapes, has the potential to just burn pastures for days, then that reduces the amount of feed for stock. That's the big concern? Uh, absolutely. So pastoralists are, at the moment are working on putting in fire breaks where they think they're appropriate. Uh, we'll be working with them as much as we can to try and ensure that uh, they've got some plans to reduce the fuel load in certain areas uh, to, so that if a fire breaks out, uh, there is a chance to control it before it does spread uh, uncontrollably. Uh, you mentioned a Bushfire Regional Alliance group. Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, so Bushfires NT are looking at alternative options for assisting uh, stakeholders who are not currently uh, covered by a volunteer bushfire brigade. Volunteer bushfire brigades are located within fire protection zones, but out in the fire management zone, uh, there is no fire suppression resource. 
Uh, so we're in very early stages of consultation about what a uh, what sort of model we might be able to use uh, to assist landholders to work with each other uh, to control fires. Can you tell me when the fire season in Central Australia sort of starts and finishes? Uh, the fire season in Central Australia doesn't have set dates that go with it. Uh, it's really dependent on the conditions that we get at the time. So obviously there's been a lot of rain recently. Uh, we are still under the fire danger uh, season restrictions um, at the moment. That's through until the end of February. We'll assess the conditions then and decide whether that needs to be extended. But uh, as to when fires are really going to start occurring around the landscape, it depends on how quickly this grass dries out uh, and whether we get any more rain coming from some of the systems up north. Obviously there's been lots of rain, but that's made the grass grow. Now there's more fuel loads. How big of a concern is that this season going forward? The, the amount of grass uh, certainly gives potential for fires to spread more, uh, both more rapidly and also cover a, a larger area uh, than in other years when we don't have that uh, fuel loading around. So it's all about mitigation now to try and put in some breaks across the landscape that uh, we'll be able to pull fires up on um, should, wildfires, should wildfires start later in the year. And how do, you, how do you manage such a big area? Where do you choose to do the fire breaks? Uh, try and make use of natural um, breaks in the terrain where possible so we can uh, broaden the, the area across an escarpment, for instance. We can use creek beds uh, or bare patches such as some of the sand dunes. Uh, it's really making making use of what is available uh, in the landscape already and just adding to that. Nathaniel Staniford there from Bushfires NT speaking there to our Alice Springs rural reporter Victoria Ellis. If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour. It is 20 minutes past one here on the ABC. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors. And read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. Hello, my name is Saloidi Botongoleoi and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Now for years here on the Country Hour, we've been talking about the potential to use robots to pick fruit. A lot of people in the mango industry think it's the way of the future, but I can tell you right now, on a farm in Tasmania, robots are in use. They're actually picking fruit every single day. We're going to hear soon from a strawberry grower there uh, who has just ordered a whole bunch of them, 16 new mango robots, are busy picking fruit. How is it all going? You'll hear after Emily Nenny.
In the morning there by Emily Nenny. This is The Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC right across the Territory. Let's head now to a strawberry farm in Tasmania that has some brand new employees. These are 16 robots that have recently been shipped out from the UK, especially to pick fruit. It's actually happening on this Tassie farm. Uh, how's it all going? Uh, site manager Eva Tildechrist explained how they all work to Larissa Smith. A robot will, uh, will uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked the berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of, of the chassis, which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360-degree camera, which take a photo all the way around that they would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin. And after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot. So while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber it will also do an estimation of uh, how heavy is the berry. So it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight. It travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can move in quite difficult terrain and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them. How much manual labour do you need to, to check on the progress of the robots, like emptying the trays or if, if little issues crop up and they, they stop moving? Not a whole lot. At the moment we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to 12 towards the end of the season. How are they powered? Two strong batteries inside them, which uh, will give you a good good amount of, uh, I think, almost up to eight hours of running time, and then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to, uh, to a Wi-Fi system, but that's more for us to be able to, to remotely control them from their operators having a tablet in their head, and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they picked, they know if it's time to swap the trays out, and uh, they can identify any faults coming up but they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro, processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future. They don't pick as fast as your staff here. No. So what's the financial advantage to having these robots? They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage, <laughs> to put it like that. Um, they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and economically it's a, it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at. And obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can get the workforce needed. For example, last year we, when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work and we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously 
robots don't get COVID. They don't roll an ankle. They, uh, they're pretty reliant workers. How often would the robots make a mistake? Pick a berry that's the wrong colour, for example. At the moment, we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good, good quality. It's a work in progress. It's, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's, it's something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming, I believe. Uh, same as uh, 150 years ago, no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming, and now it's a part of everyday farming life. That is Eva Tildecrist from UK company Dogtooth Technologies, speaking there to Larissa Smith about robots being used to pick strawberries. Is that the future for the mango industry? Only time will tell. That's it for the Country Hour for today. If you missed any part of our program, you can always catch it up later via the podcast. Just jump onto your phone, find your podcast app and search for Northern Territory Country Hour. You can download and listen to any and all of our programs there. That's it for me. Take it easy. Take it easy.